Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. Hello and welcome to the Truth From The Stand Deer Hunting Podcast. I'm your host, Clint Campbell, and you're listening to episode number 18. Today, we're joined by John Cooner from Whitetail Institute of North America. Today, John will share tips and strategies for food plot success, everything from soil testing to planting, and I will share my weekend recap of the Great American Outdoor Show, so stay tuned. All right, welcome to the Truth from the Stand Deer Hunting Podcast. I'm your host, Clint Campbell, and you're listening to episode number 18. Today, we are joined by John Cooner of Whitetail Institute of North America. Looking forward to the conversation with John. I I know in the past, folks have heard me talk about Whitetail Institute of North America, their products. Of course, you know, they are, are a recent uh, sponsor of, of our podcast here, but I've used their products for, for a bunch of years. And this is kind of the time of year when you really start thinking about um, what you want to do for next year in terms of your food plot strategy. So I thought it'd be a great time to bring John on. He has a wealth of knowledge uh, when it comes to food plots. And I thought it'd be the perfect time. And as people are starting to think about what they're going to do for next year, you know, why not have a quick tutorial session and just kind of a brief reminder uh, of some things you should be thinking about as you're getting ready to, you know, break ground or at least kind of designate ground to break ground in the uh, in the spring, whether you're putting spring plots in or whether you're putting fo- uh, fall plots in. But before we drive, dive in, not drive in, uh, dive into all the great details of uh, Whitetail Institute of North America, I am joined, as always, by my esteemed colleague, Phil Marchek. What is going on, my friend? No, everything's going on, buddy. Uh, I'm... At this point, a little less than two weeks away from a new edition. Yep, baby and, countdown. Uh, oh, man, yeah, it's getting a little scary. Mm-hmm. It's getting a little real. Um, but, uh, you know, it's I've, I've, been thinking about, I've been thinking about the woods a little bit more often now that uh, now that i got some other things going on. It's kind of like, you know, on top of just being out there and enjoying uh, hunting, um, it's, it's really a, a, a great opportunity to... Uh, to sit back and kind of reflect on some things as you're waiting. So yeah, yeah, I've been thinking about that lately. Yeah. I know what you're saying. Don't lie. You're, you're really thinking about running away to the woods. I mean, I, I could build a tree stand, like a tree house stand. (laughs) Swiss family Robinson style. (laughs) I mean, it's, it's, it's feasible. I I wouldn't put it past me. So I don't know. We'll see. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Um, no, I totally, I totally hear what you're saying. I'm definitely looking forward to a little bit of timber time. I have some, uh, I have some time coming up here that I'll be headed back to the farm 
here next weekend or in two weekends, uh, the weekend of February 18th, I'll be headed back. I'm okay. going to do, yeah, I'm going to do a little bit of scouting. I have a couple of places kind of pegged. That's the, uh, the public land that's near the farm that I want to check out. The habitat in that area is really, really good. I did a little scouting online using uh, the, the new little fun app that I got the Onyx maps tool that I got for my, my Western trip that I've been kind of playing around with to get used to. Um, so I've been kind of doing a little bit of scouting using that. And I've really found a couple places that I thought would be kind of interesting. Now Tate has beat me to it to a degree. He had a, he's actually off from work at the moment cause he had a hand surgery. So he's been taking advantage of that and kind of getting out and uh, checking out some uh, some new potential hunting places, and he actually scouted part of this area this past weekend. And I talked to him, and he said it's uh, it's looking promising from what he can see can see yeah. so far. Yeah, I mean, he okay. wasn't in the exact area that I was looking to necessarily go, the general area. But there's a there's a you got to cross a stream and then up on a up on a ridge top. There's a point that kind of seems like it's a nice little secluded area up there because it's kind of in between a bunch of private ground and all those folks who own that private ground around there. I can, I mean, I'll have to scout it to be able to tell for certain, but I can say with a pretty high degree of certainty, I doubt that they're hunting it because they all have, you know, relatively decent tracts of land up there, you know, so anywhere from like 60 right. to 100 acres, whatever the case might they've be. Got somewhere, they've got somewhere else more comfortable they can get to. Right. And the, just the general, you know, thought for a lot of people, uh, especially the folks, you know, probably, you know, around my hometown to a degree, especially if they own their own land. Uh, you know, kind of look, I don't want to say look down on, but see state land or, or public land as, as lesser land than the land that they own, which is, which is fine. But that means they probably aren't, aren't touching it. So, um, it's good for you though. Yeah. Good for me. It's, I, I get almost like private land type of hunting, you know, cause I'm near their parcels. Um, but I'm, I'm on public ground and, uh, and the deer are probably getting pushed there because, uh, it's typically a little, a little thicker cause the state usually does a little bit of clear cutting in that area, particularly over the, over the years. And, uh, it's usually just terrain. that's kind of tough to get into too. Like I said, I got to cross a stream and there's a, a decent climb you gotta, gotta make to get to it. So right. feeling good about it. So I'm definitely planning to get a little timber time in, but I did get a little, uh, I guess a little outdoor, outdoor precursor i guess if you will or it's something to tickle yeah, my taste buds <laughs> this this past weekend um, i headed out to the great american outdoor show in harrisburg this weekend and uh, uh it's very fascinating i would love to hear more about that clint would you well <laughs> well yes i would <laughs> well hold Lead on in. to your socks i have more information to share um oh, man i gotta put socks on first <laughs> yeah so i headed out there this past weekend um you know I was meeting up with the guys from Exodus. Uh, they had a booth. They currently have a booth out there in uh, in the archery hall, and met up with those guys. We were planning to do a little bit of possible live video recording or live live podcasting from there, but we had some technical difficulties that it just didn't um, it just didn't come to fruition. Uh, but I got to spend some time with them. Their booth looked great. Uh, it's always good to see those guys in, in chat and. And talk with those folks. You know, it seemed like there was a lot of folks around their booth, so that was a uh, that was always good. And then once I spent a lot of time with them in the morning, I kind of did a little bit of a walkabout. I did manage to go check out Bill Winky's seminar while I was there, and got and I actually had an opportunity to talk to him a little bit. Um, I know that we've had Aaron Warbritton on in the past from the Midwest Whitetail Crew, um, and spoke with Bill about coming on. And it seems like uh, he's he's interested to, to come on and talk some deer with us. We just have to figure out a time when we might be able to get uh, schedules to line up. Uh, but he shared a good, uh, you know, an interesting seminar. It was really talking about, you know, what's, you know, I think he's well known for, which is patterning, patterning mature deer, um, mm-hmm. and, 
he gave a, he gave a great PowerPoint presentation, you know, that would, you know, kind of included photos from his farm and, uh, trail camera photos and kind of how he uses trail cameras and how he sets up different locations on his farm. Um, what type of Intel he's pulling from those trail cameras specifically, like what he's looking for outside of just the, the norm and really how overall, how he gets on a buck and, and starts to whittle down the core area, um, that they're living in and, and, uh, how he kind of maps out his game plan for a season when he finds a buck that he wants to target. So you pretty much just went through the synopsis of a podcast. <laughs> I pretty much did. Yeah. It's like, yeah. might as well just end it. <laughs> thanks for listening. <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks guys. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, no, I saw, so that was really the only seminar I went to. Like I was trying to get to the one where they were doing some shed dog, uh, training sessions, I believe is what it was. Mm-hmm. Cause you know, we, we've been talking about a dog and thinking of getting a dog. And if I do get a dog, another dog at some point, I want to try to train him to shed hunt because he certainly yeah, got to be, well, he's <laughs> certainly got to be better at it than me because I have yet to find a shed. So he can't be any worse. <laughs> you haven't even stumbled across one? <laughs> <laughs> no, I've not even stumbled across. I think my problem is, is like when you're shed hunting, you really, your focus needs to be on the ground, right? Um, right. Cause you know, you're not going to find sheds that that aren't on the ground. If you do, right, they're not going to be in the trees, <laughs> right? If they are, you, you have something going on there. You should make some money off of, yeah. um, but you might have reindeer, Santa's reindeer. Um, so my challenge is when I hit the woods to shed hunt, I typically am looking around at deer sign and really kind of scouting for deer season, um, right. or for the upcoming deer season. So I'm shed challenged shall we say. So, (laughs) so my, my big plan is, is that I get a dog and then I hopefully either can teach him how to shed hunt or find someone who can help me teach him how to shed hunt. Um, and then he can find the sheds and then I can scout. And then I have the best of both worlds. I take him out he finds sheds. I scout for deer sign for the next year and we both have, everyone's winning. Nice. So that is my, uh, my dog plan, but I didn't make it to that seminar. I ended up getting caught up talking to, uh, uh, the guys from Exodus for, for a while and, uh, just talking deer hunting and stuff. So it's, uh, I think that's probably my favorite part of going to the outdoor show. It's like, yeah, it's great to see some new products and, you know, maybe catch a seminar or two, but now, what really, was, what was in your mind? The, uh, like the coolest product that you saw, the coolest product that I saw. Yeah. So there were two that I would say at a minimum kind of interested me, um, I'll answer your question first, I guess. So the coolest product that I saw was now I've heard of these before, but I've never seen them in person. Uh, so it was my first time kind of checking them out were the gearhead bows. Um, mm. you know, anybody who knows me knows I'm, I'm a Matthews guy. I love Matthews bows. It's what I shoot. Um, you know, I'm, they're comfortable. I feel comfortable with them. I trust them. There's no reason for me to, you know, change what I shoot, I guess at this point. <laughs> so if you're listening, <laughs> yeah. So if you're, yeah, if anyone has a Matthews, they want to give me or a Matthews 32, that'd be great. Halo 32. That'd be great. Um, but I was always been intrigued by the gearhead books. I, I I read some stuff about them, and they if for those who aren't aware, I mean they're not affiliated with us in any way, shape, or form. You should go to their website and check out check out their bows. But they they build really really small bows, right? So I think their smallest one is like eighteen eighteen inches, and they're a double I riser. So, yeah, they're they're a double riser, so it's a riser on each side that's really thin, and they're made out of carbon fiber or aluminum, um, and they're really really light, but the draw, I mean, you get normal draw weight, normal draw length to a degree. Now the 18 inch one, I think there's some limitations in what the draw length, max draw length could be on that, but I'm pretty sure you get a 70 pound 
uh, draw weight on any of their bows, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and it's just super smooth, you know, and, and they're just ridiculously light. Like the where where I saw a great application for them, at least for me, would be in Western hunting because they literally will fit in a fit inside of a backpack. Right. You know, to where and, and they're super light. The other interesting thing is the way that the risers are built. Like you can literally stick. So where your hand goes, right? So like you know where you where you're holding the where you're holding the bow. Yep. It, it's attached in between the two risers. With screws, of course, so it's not molded in there. Mm-hmm. And then, so you can have it be a right-handed bow, or say, you know, if you were left-handed, and I was like, yeah, I'm thinking of getting a new bow, and you're like, well, I'll buy your bow. And it's like, you know, how much of a bummer is it whenever you realize the person's bow you're getting a good deal on was actually left-handed, you're right-handed, and so now you can't buy it. <laughs> Buyer <This>, beware. <laughs> yeah, this this bow, you can actually change where the grip is, and when it flips, you flip the bow completely upside down. So it's completely symmetrical, like whether you're shooting it upside down or the other way, as long as you switch the handle to be correct for left or right-handed, the bow right. can be flipped and shot either way. It's pretty nice. Yeah, and, and and the same thing goes for any of your accessories. So like your um you know, like your sights and so forth, it's it's always able to be switched to be right or left-handed. Which right. is nice. which is really cool, especially for anyone who plans to shoot right and left-handed in the same season. Which I'm, I'm just that's that's a unique use case. <laughs> that but. is a unique use case. It's like so, someday I you know want an extra challenge, so I'm going to shoot left-handed. Right. Um, you know when you when you get that monster right-handed, you're like you know I'm going to try for left-handed. I would like a right and left-handed monster, please. Um, right. <laughs> so that that was probably the most interesting. Uh, thing that I had uh, run across while I was there. I did actually shoot the 20 inch uh, version of that and it's smooth. It actually reminds me of uh, the prime bows and I was never a big fan of the prime bows, but for some reason on this bow, it felt, it felt really good because um, primes you're, you know, are really kind of known for having that really, really solid back wall. It really, you know, I don't want to say a deep Valley. I don't even know how to describe it. It's almost like, you almost have to push the bowstring forward to get it to release. Like you can, you can relax off. Like when you draw back, you can totally get relaxed and that bow is not going to creep on you at all, like ever. Um, so you could literally hold it full draw for, you know, who knows how long and the bows are so light. I want to say like three pounds or something like that. Um, so you could probably, you could hold it, you could hold it full draw for, for ages. It feels like, um, the other cool product that I saw was really, it was a tent that goes on top of your truck. Um, which, oh, I remember seeing that picture you posted. Yeah, like I, I don't know. It, it might be kind of silly, but I just really saw a great application, at least for me, in wanting to do more public land hunting. How that would be, you know, if I'm going on a solo trip and don't have anyone to go with me, then that seems like a really um, useful tool for me to have. Uh, there's right. a couple different models they make, a couple different sizes and stuff like that. I mean, I don't know that I, I just out- I just assumed if you got in trouble at the home. That you would just go outside and, yeah, living, and just crawl up into that. Living in my living in my truck took, would take on a whole new meeting if I got one of those. Um, <laughs> but I, I could definitely see application for that. Now they are a little salty, you know. So the more practical side of me says, for close to what I'd be spending on one of those, I could probably buy a really cheap, used, small pull behind like pop up or camper or something like that. Right, right. Um, you know, and have a little bit more comfort maybe. Uh, but they're really, really cool. The, the guy who owns the company was there. He was a really good dude. So I just thought that those were really interesting and, and a possible um, purchase in, in my future. Um, other than that, you know, I hit I hit a couple other vendors and just kind of was checking things out. You know, I stopped by the Quiet Cat booth. Um, you know, for those that are unaware, Quiet Cat is a really 
you know, kind of an outdoors driven um, bicycle. They also make like three wheel uh, options um, that are part in part motorized. I think most of them, Uh, they're Mm -hmm. pretty pricey, but it's just a way for you to get from, uh, from, you know, wherever you're entering a a property to, you know, your hunting location with low impact and, and quick and without sweating, you know, so you're keeping your, and and relatively silent. I mean, not dealing with emissions and, and, uh, it definitely beats like the four wheeler kind of approach and side by side approach that folks take in terms of impact. Um, you know, so, you know, I, I definitely think for those who have the coin to, to, to splash on one of those, it would probably be a worthwhile endeavor. Um, but for me, you know, I'll, I'll continue to use the, uh, the muck boot express to my, uh, <laughs> to, to my tree stands. Um, sure. I'm trying to think I stopped by the Matthews booth just to see, you know, I, I, I shouldn't have because I'd want to buy something, but uh, I just I did check out the Halon 32s. They uh, of course look great. I didn't get to shoot any of those, and that was on purpose. Um, <laughs> did not tempt yourself? Yeah, because I was going to want to come home with one, and uh, you know my the current Halon I have is, is is treating me just fine. Even though I'd like to have a 32, I've heard nothing but great things about those. Um, but did stop by that booth just to kind of check some stuff out, and uh, I did swing by the Sitka booth as well. Um, you know, I have the elk hunting trip coming up, so I'm kind of looking into upping my gear a little bit. Cause most of the stuff I have is of course for, for whitetail hunting. Um, it's, you know, many seasons old at, at this point, I could definitely use an, an upgrade with some, uh, few choice pieces. So I stopped by the, uh, the Sitka booth to check out some of the stuff that they got going on. And, uh, they have a new line at the moment that is coming out. I don't think you can order anything yet. I think you can sign up for pre-order. Um, but they have their new sub Alpine, uh, stuff coming out, which is, you know, more, more for their Western big game, uh, type of hunting. So I was kind of checking Just that stuff time. out. Yeah, I know. So, you know, <laughs> shocking <laughs> how, how fortuitous, um, so you were so lucky. Yeah. So, uh, I did check some of that stuff out. It looks really good. Um, you know, of course, Sitka always makes really smart pieces. Uh, they put a lot into the development of their pieces and stuff like that. So I I didn't expect to, uh, to see anything, but you know, top notch, uh, top notch gear. Um, the folks that were at the booth were great, you know, so if, you know, if you're at the Harrisburg show and you're considering, you know, looking to Sitka stuff, I'd say definitely stop by the folks that were at the booth were super helpful. You know, the guy actually stopped what he was doing and, and was talking to me and opened up a catalog and actually went through the catalog and I was explaining to him, you know, what my use cases were. And he literally went through and was kind of circling like the things he would recommend. He was, a you know, Sitka's from Bozeman, Montana. So he's of course from, um, Bozeman area, uh, Montana and elk hunts. So he knew exactly what I was going to be kind of looking for. So he went through and was circling things that he would suggest or that he would consider wearing during the the time of year that I'm going to be out there. Then also helping me think about how to kind of piece together a system using those as like base layers and then getting into like my white tail gears, like my outers for whenever I get back to Pennsylvania in the Midwest. Um, when I do my whitetail hunting to where I can kind of have the best of both worlds without buying two full, you know, complete systems. I can kind of pick and choose, um, the best pieces from each section. And then, uh, and that was basically my Harrisburg show. And then when I got home from the Harrisburg show, I actually purchased my, uh, Montana, uh, big game combination tag that will be for elk, uh, mule deer and whitetail. And the trip is penciled in. We are leaving September 9th. 
I think the ninth through the twenty second, I believe. Yeah, the ninth through the twenty second, because Eagleson actually has to get back. He's got a wedding on the twenty third that he can't miss. So we'll probably get in around midnight <laughs> on the twenty sure second. <laughs> um, no, he can't. He can't miss this one. Um, yeah. So that's a, that's a hard date that we're coming back. So we are penciled in the ninth through the twenty second. I'll be uh, chasing elk in the uh, the mountains of Montana. So I'm pumped. Solid. Yeah. So that was that was pretty much my. Uh, my update. It's been a, you know, it's been a, it, it was a good weekend. Got a lot of stuff done. Um, you know, like I said, met a ton of cool people at the outdoor show. One guy who I, you know, we're going to have on, um, great guy, John Mulligan. Um, he's, uh, he work he's from, uh, he works with the, uh, the wicked tree, uh, wicked tree gear team. Um, and I'm sure you've probably seen his pictures on like the lone wolf website. And of course the right, Wicked Tree right. site and stuff like that. Um, dude, it's kind of, kind of buffed up with some, with some tattoos. Um, he's got some great stories. He's a, he's a, he's a former cop, um, uh, and works in the outdoor industry now. So he's got some great war stories. I think we're going to have him on to, uh, to, uh, do a little discussion to hear some of those, uh, some of those, uh, undercover stories, if you will. I was going to say, are we even going to get to the deer hunting or are we just going to go talk about stories? Who knows? That one, because I feel like that could probably be a second podcast. Yeah. We might just roll deep in that one and see what we get to. But, uh, (laughs) that with that, I think that's my update, Phil. I don't know if you have anything else to kind of, uh, tag onto that, but, uh, if not, then I think we can go ahead and maybe ring John in. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm kind of in uh, lockdown mode in terms of, uh, (laughs) my, my hunting repertoire and, and conversation pieces, uh, I, my focus is slightly shifted at this point, but uh, hopefully not for too long. Right. Well, for good reason. But in the meantime, yeah. you can at least learn a little bit about the uh, the Whitetail Institute of North America. So without further ado, let's go ahead and ring John in. Unfortunately, Phil had to drop off the line before we had a chance to dial John in. And usually this time every week we hear a word about our partners. But this episode is brought to you entirely by Whitetail Institute of North America, so we can just dive right into the good stuff. All right, folks, we are back, and I am your host, Clint Campbell, and you're listening to the Truth From The Stand Deer Hunting Podcast, episode number 18, and today I am joined by John Cooner of Whitetail Institute of North America. Super stoked to have John uh, join the show. Uh, I've been using Whitetail Institute products for some time, have had great success with them, and you know, for me, whenever I first started getting into food plotting, um, it seemed like a little bit of a daunting task, and uh, you know, I connected with some of the folks at Whitetail Institute. Uh, they walked my father-in-law and I through, through the process and really kind of helped us create food plots that have really done you know a great job and, and wonders in many cases uh, for our property um, and thought you know if I was having some of those similar or some of those uh, struggles uh, I assumed folks who are out there listening probably have the same kind of thoughts and maybe apprehensions when it comes to to building food plots so I thought it'd be great to have John on to kind of dispel some myths and kind of walk us through what it takes to put good food plots in um, and that way you know this time of year of course is the time where you start really planning your your habitat management and stuff like that so this is a great time to kind of get that information as you plan for the uh, the upcoming deer season and all your habitat changes. So first, before we dive into the the uh, the details of things, I just want to say hello to John and uh, how are you doing, sir? I'm doing fine, Clint. How are you? I'm doing all right. You know, got a got a cup of Joe here this morning, uh, and uh, just enjoying the uh, the nice, cold, brisk weather here in the in the Northeast. How about how about yourself? Well, I wish you hadn't said that. Now I want a cup of coffee, and it's all the way across the room. But I'll try to muscle through. <laughs> yeah, I usually don't let it get too get too far from me. But uh, that's right. Before we dive into the details, you know, I wanted to get an understanding of just your your background and experience, and kind of how you came to to kind of take part in the Whitetail Institute brand and and, and company overall. 
Well, it's, it, actually, it's a matter of uh, just good fortune, I guess. I'm like everybody else uh, who hunts. I just enjoy hunting. Uh, gosh, about 15 years ago, I, I had a neat idea. Uh, we have a lot of planted pines down here in Alabama, and I was riding along with a uh, with a with a property owner, the place we leased, and looking at the pine trees, and they were right up against the road. We drove on, and then they'd kind of move way back, and then they'd come back to the road. And I said, you know, why didn't you why didn't you plant those areas? And he said, oh, we did, but the trees just didn't take for some reason. And so I kind of got an idea, and I didn't realize what it was. And later on, I thought about it, and I said, well, shoot, these big old pine plantations, they're huge, you know. And uh, if, if the trees didn't take there, well, there are probably some spots up, you know, back in the trees where they didn't take. And this was before, uh, well, it was either before Google Earth or before I knew about it. <laughs> um, so I got one summer, and this was, it was down here in the heat of the Alabama summer. I got one of those old green uh, military uh, surplus jackets and wrapped up in it, put some welding gloves on and got my, my Honda uh, ATV and just crunched back through the trees and found some little places, little clearings, and uh, literally got an old junkie lawnmower and dragged it around behind my behind my ATV uh, to kind of knock everything down and planted some little plots in there. And then I went and got some plastic chairs and some little bit of sticks and things and make a blind, and I put one at each end, and I'd just go sit there all day and read a book. Uh, and I had a, I had a deer filtering in and out all day. It was a killer setup, but I had... Uh, get back to the reason I'm mentioning that is I had tried my own mix and, you know, looked to see what would do well, and it did fine. And then the next year I tried uh, Imperial Whitetail No-Plow, and it just did so much better than what I put together that uh, I just kept using that, and it just kind of continued to go from there. And I went to work with Whitetail Institute uh, a little under 15 years ago, I guess, and had just uh, been so fortunate to do what I just love to do. And then, it, and then learn from people who know so much more than I do. Right. Uh, I mean, agronomists and, and hunters, uh, it, it, just everybody there uh, really knows what they're doing, and they've they've taught me a lot. I got a lot more to learn, uh, but it's a it's it's a really neat uh, place to be. And, um, I started out just helping customers on the phone. Now I do lots of different things. They've thrown me into video work. It's I kind of like that old commercial with Mikey. Right. You know, let Mikey try it. Uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> but I've had good fortune to, to, to help customers all over the U.S. And I think the reason I'm able to do that is because I've had a lot of successes and I've had a lot of failures, too. And I've learned from those. So uh, that's it. Right. Yeah. So I think we probably, my father-in-law, were probably on the phone with you a little bit when we first, you know, a couple of years ago started using um, Whitetail Institute. And it's it's nice, you know, one of the nice things was, you know, I think sometimes whenever you folks are calling and whether it's, you know, with a seed company or just about anything else, there's a little bit of trepidation to make that customer service call because you don't really know what you're going to get on the other end of the phone. And the last thing you want as, right. a, as a customer is to feel... Uh, to, to to feel to feel dumb you know what i mean to where it's like you know the Absolutely. folks on the other line are kind of implying that maybe you should know these things and that was the one thing with working with you guys was uh you know there was nothing but a, a helpful smile on the other end of the phone you know kind of understanding what we were going through and uh, the questions that we had and um and we're always willing to take as much time as they needed to make sure that we had the right fertilizer make sure we had the right amount of lime make sure we had the right 
uh, right. plants that we were going to be, or forage that we were going to be planting and so forth. So I'm sure we probably had the pleasure of running into your voice on the other side of that line. So appreciate your, uh, your patience with us. <laughs> well, you're welcome. If, if you got me on the phone or anybody else, I, uh, I used to tell my wife, she'd look at me sort of funny. I'd say, you know, you're a great gal. You're decorative and functional. And she'd just give me that, that look like you're an idiot. But, uh, I, I hope that we were courteous and helpful because that's, that's a big thing that we pride ourselves on there we've you know that we all hate to call in somewhere and get a freaking machine on the phone have to push 18 different you know times to get somewhere right and uh, a lot of folks don't know this but every single office in our building has a strobe light mounted in the wall and if that phone that customer line rings more than three times before it's picked up it's picked up that strobe starts flashing it's bright in oh, every wow. office and everybody reaches for the phone uh, like I said, everybody, you know, we're not manpower wise. We don't have a huge number of people, but it's it's fine because everybody is able to to you know back each other up. There's a lot of cross training, so whoever you get on the phone is going to be able to help you. Right. So if you had a good experience, that's gratifying because we really, really do take uh, great pains to do that. Yeah, and customer service is an important part of you know having a successful brand that really kind of speaks to you know your your consumer base and in this instance customers. But speaking of in, important pieces, right? So. You know, one of the things I think that is, is challenging just whenever folks start thinking about putting in a food plot is, you know, trying to come up or understand what the most important pieces of putting a food plot together are. So what are those most important things to consider when when you're going to put in a food plot or when someone's kind of starting out saying, hey, I'd like to do something on my land? Um, what are the things they should really be thinking about in those instances? Well, the, 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 <laughs> this may sound funny, but the first thing is that it's fun because if, if it's not fun, you know, there's no point in doing it. Right. But the, the second thing, really, seriously, is is it's not hard. It, it just is a matter of just recognizing a few pieces of where you're trying to end up. And uh, once you see those pieces, you just go, gosh, this is easy, and you just knock it out. There's really not much to it. Uh, one thing, you know, it's kind of stupid uh, to say this, you might think, but uh, the first thing is make sure you have deer in the area. I mean, if you, I know it sounds stupid. If you live and play at a plant in downtown, downtown Atlanta, food plots probably aren't going to help a lot. Right. But uh, besides that, uh, I would look at uh, how big an area you think you could draw deer from. In other words, is your property landlocked? Uh, you know, nothing, nothing uh, much around it, or do you have a national park you butt butt up on? Look outside the borders of your property and see how much land you think you could draw deer from. Um, you want to take the adjacent land into account. Uh, also, you want to look at uh, at what you already have available to plant. I've I've hunted the last twenty four years on seventy eight acres and have had great success. And right. you can do so much with small properties. Uh, just see how much land you have available to plant. If you don't have a very little, uh, you don't have a whole lot of land, plant what you got. It's going to help. Right. So when you tell those me- are the biggest thing. Right. So when you start talking about little, you know, parcels of land, you know, the one thing that jumps into my mind is, you know, trying to divide out how much land I should be planting, you know, so is there some kind of golden rule or standard you guys kind of operate by to kind of determine what percentages of land should be put into food plots? The 1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, 
and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Yes, and uh, let me just say this to start out with. Even when we do a big property work on a big property and put all our resources to bear, we tell folks, we're going to draw up the best plan for you that we can. And I can almost guarantee you that after you see how the deer react to it, you're going to want to tweak it. Right. Uh, so uh, most folks, you know, we, you start with a rule of thumb and then modify it, uh, you know, as you need to. Most folks will start out with, say, 2 to 5% of their property in plots. Some folks go as high as 10%. Uh, but you know, two to five percent. Uh, if you don't have enough uh, enough land to do that, uh, then just plant what you have. Right. Yeah. I mean, I can definitely attest to that because we started off, you know, uh, with uh, we kind of went, uh, I guess, a little bit ambitious on our our property at first, and we decided to put five acres in of of clover because we really wanted something that was going to be there during early <clears throat> to kind of help the deer along during the spring green up process. Um, cause uh-huh. a lot of, uh, the lease, we leased out a lot of our fields as well to farmers and a lot of that was corn. So that wasn't coming on until later in the year, of course. Um, right. you know, so we did the five acres and we had great success with that five acres. So then we actually ended up doing another two acres, uh, that we actually put into power plant, uh, cause we definitely wanted uh-huh. a little bit more for spring green up and, um, you know, and then of course it made nice cover cause it grows up to you know, roughly six feet tall and stuff. So I can definitely attest to that. You know, you kind of do the trial of the first kind of the first kind of piece that you can, can manage to bite off. Um, and then you kind of right. go, go from there and see, and see what works and just kind of keep tweaking. But you know, when you're thinking about the, the locations and, and so forth, what things should people consider when they're trying to figure out the location or type of food plot to plant? Cause I know there's a couple of different types of food plots you can put in depending on what you want to get out of that food plot. So can we talk a little bit right. about location and food plot type? Yeah, sure. The, the, the main, the main consideration there is you want deer to feel safe using the plot, especially during daylight hours. Um, if they don't feel safe, they're not going to use a food source, no matter how good it is, except maybe at night. Uh, and there, there are a couple of different kinds of plots, uh, probably more than that, but the two basic ones, some folks call them uh, a destination plot. Uh, I prefer to call them a congregation plot. Right. And that's if you have enough room to, if you have enough land to where you can, you can, uh, Put a centrally located plot, uh, and then the, you, you know, in that's the congregation plot. And then just don't hunt it uh, at all, or maybe very rarely during the rut. And the deer figure out pretty quickly that's a safe zone, and they head for it. And then you stagger little hunting plots between the bedding areas and the destination plot. If you have a really big piece of land, almost always you can divide it up, you know, on a map into chunks and make each one its little own community like that. Right. But even if you just have uh, have a, have a you know thousands of acres, or you just got a small a small area, you're going to want to use hunting plots. Uh, and on and what you want, what I normally do there is suggest that if you have a big central plot that you could use for a, a congregation plot, maybe a bigger plot it could be you know two, three, four acres, whatever you want. You know, put your perennials in there because then when you then you spend the time your gas uh, on the tractor mowing and spraying in the spring rather than having to drive from plot to plot to plot to plot to do that. Um, and then stagger your annuals for your, your hunting plots, uh, you know, fall annuals, fall through uh, spring annuals, and also your spring annuals, uh, put them on the hunting plots that are between those uh, those two areas. Right. So what uh, would- there are, 
there are a couple of great designs just to give you an idea. Yeah. Uh, but but they're uh, to, th- these are the biggies for helping deer feet feel safe. Um, you know, it sounds trite, but think like a deer. Right. Uh, generally speaking, a long skinny plot's better than a big wide fat plot. You know, big wide postage stamp. Now, if all you can do is a big wide postage stamp, do the postage stamp. But these are just general ideas that so you can think think like I'm thinking. You know, long and skinny is preferable to wide and fat. You want to place the pot, the plot, if possible, right up against cover or even in cover. So that, and when I talk about about cover, it can be real cover like woods or a thicket or just perceived cover like maybe four or five rows of standing corn or something like that. That uh, that the deer will feel like it breaks up their outline, um, and that can uh, can uh, 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 expert another expert told me a while back, a guy named Neil Darty up in uh, uh, New York told me he said you know a lot of times you'll have these big deer, big bucks come in. And, uh, you know, that'll keep them from having to eyeball each other and it makes them more comfortable. Right. So you got long and skinny, place it close to cover. And then the other one is an idea <clears throat> that I've heard ref- referred to as, and I can't come up with a better term for it, linear edge. Mm-hmm. And that's basically anywhere the uh, the food plot planting butts up on real or perceived cover, whether that's the thicket or you put a strip of something taller in there. The more of that you can have, then that should equate with the more safe deer field uh, using the plot. Like, for instance, uh, on, on the big square postage spot, uh, postage stamp spot, instead of doing just a straight square, kind of have the, the edges wander in and out a little bit. That makes that line longer, mm-hmm. and it, uh, you know that that sh- that should help you there. So those three things. Uh, also, uh, you know, you want to you want to do your best to make sure that. Regardless of the wind direction, you can get in and out of there without getting busted, uh, you know, by the deer. Uh, one thing is if you have, say, a, like a pond or a road, uh, you could put that to your back so the deer can't come around behind you. Uh, make sure you have different ways in and out based on different wind directions. And that uh, another another neat trick is uh, that I learned is that, uh, you know, people will – before the season, they'll make a pass to their stands. They usually go in there. They'll take sometimes take an ATV disc and just disc disc it. Hmm. Well, I learned from one of our guys who's been hunting and doing this a lot longer than I have. Mark Trudeau, uh, he's now the director of certified research for us. He just goes down there with a sprayer, uh, with all the all the fans turned off except the one behind the ATV, and just sprays Roundup. And what happens there is because he doesn't turn the soil over, you don't get all that mud sticking to your boots in the fall when you walk in there. That's a great idea. Uh, so that's pretty much it. You just want to make sure they feel safe, and that includes the, uh, you know, the shape we talked about, the features to talk about, uh, and keeping from getting busted going in and out. Right. Yeah. That's uh, mentioning the uh, the edge. I think is really important. I had a had the pleasure of of, of meeting Neil at one point and, and listened to a seminar with him, and he talked a good you know a great length about edge, especially that wandering edge that you mentioned is kind of is kind of interesting. Um, as we know, deer like to work an edge. So the more edge you can give them, the more, I guess you could say maybe ambush spots along that edge you would have as well, uh, which would kind of work into, uh, you know, your hunting strategy, you know, along with your food plot strategy. So, right. And a couple of, uh, getting into that, like for a couple of great designs, and these are just ideas not to say do this, but to give you an idea to think this way, an hourglass shape is good because deer will, a lot of times they'll walk into one lobe and kind of get up to where they can look through the neck to the other lobe. 
mm-hmm. you know, just walk on out there. They may come through the little the little narrow neck. It's a good place to put the stand. Mm-hmm. Another great one is an L-shaped plot, and that works real well. Uh, where you have a corner where a field butts, butts woods on two sides. Mm-hmm. Uh, that gives you the, the, the edge there and the feeling of safety. You can even put that in cover and put the stand right down at the junction of the L. Uh, those are a couple of ideas that take all of those those three things I mentioned into account. Right. So I think, you know, now that we have, we've kind of discussed, you know, where we might want to locate a plot, what type of plot we're considering putting in, um, the different shapes and, and considerations when we're designing the plot. You know, I guess let's talk about now. I guess we're at the point where we need to start thinking about what type of forage we should be planting. So how I think that this is probably one of the the, the more daunting pieces, because I think people kind of look at their property and say, this is what I kind of want to do. Right. And this is what I'd like to get out of the plot. And, and some people as right. you mentioned before, depending on their their property size and their their access to equipment and stuff like that might be kind of. Um, limited and say this is the plot place where I have to put it because it's really the only place I have or this I only have so much area to work with but I think the challenging part becomes how do you figure out you know what you should be planning so how do you determine what forage you should be using all right and I'm so glad you went to that question because most people think the next step is to perform a soil test and you can sure do it that way that's not a problem but we'll get into that later i'd imagine and and i'll tell you why it's better if you can to try to decide what you're going to plant in that site before you test the soil and we'll get to that later Um, but when you're looking at at what to plant you've got some factors to consider Uh, one of them is rainfall uh, if you're east of the Mississippi, you're going to get enough rainfall to uh, plant just about any, well, really anything we've got. Now, things get weird. As you know, in Florida, you've got the, uh, you know, the top third there, and it's pretty much like the rest of the southeast. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you've got the center section. Then you get down in south Florida, but the center section, the bottom of it, the top of the of the lower section, it's, I call it sort of monsoonal. You've got, right. uh, you've got a season where it's really wet up until, I don't know, sometime in summer, and then it starts tapering off, and you just don't have anything left toward fall and into winter. Yeah. And even our perennials will act as, as annuals then, because if you get something that requires a lot of moisture, it's happy in the spring, and you get something that likes the dryer, well, it's not happy in the spring. So right. Uh, you have to take that into account. But if you're east of the Mississippi, you get 30 inches a year of rainfall at least, and that's enough to grow anything we have. Nice. And we have stuff that will that will grow. Uh, if you just get only get this is like west of the Mississippi, a lot of areas. If you get just enough to grow winter wheat and oats, we have a food plot uh, blend that will work there. But the rainfall is the first thing, and that's usually not an issue. Then you need to decide: look, at, can you disc or till the soil? Mm-hmm. If you can't do that, then rather than trying to fudge it uh, and get something that does require what I call a prepared seedbed where you go in there and work it up, select a forest that's designed to be planted uh, and, and to flourish even with minimal seedbed prep. We've got some of those. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you can till the soil, the next, then as you can till it, then uh, you still haven't eliminated anything from the list. This is you're not really adding. You're looking at everything and taking options out. Right. If you can till the soil, uh, then you can plant anything we've got. Uh, and then, and then you also want to consider whether or not you can spray and mow in the spring. Now, that's not just can you, but will you? Uh, I remember I had some customers in Pennsylvania that hunted in West Virginia, and they had all kind of equipment, but they're not going to go down all the way down there from Pennsylvania just to spray and mow food plots in the spring. So it's better if you just stay with an annual if you can't do those maintenance things 
or you know you're not going to have time to because to make a perennial last as long as it should you've got to do those things now again a perennial is a planting that lasts for just designed to last for more than one calendar year from a single planting an mm-hmm. annual is for only part of the year so for a perennial you've got to work the seed bed up you got to be able to spray it and mow it in the spring if you can't do 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 either of those then it's best to stick with annuals now let's say you can uh uh, uh, you know, disc the seed bed up to work it up. You can spray and mow in the spring, and you want a perennial. Say for your big, uh, your big uh, 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 congregation plot or, or any, anywhere. Then it becomes which one do you pick? And this is this is an example of why this is so easy. You look at the soil, look at the drainage characteristics of the plot. The way I put it, and that's a function of the type of soil and the slope. Now, soil type, you know, they have all these scientific names, Luvasol and all these things. You don't need to know any of that. It's one, <laughs> if you know your land, you can do it in your hair-covered computer. Right. What we're wondering, what we're asking is, does the dirt, the soil in that plot, have the, the ability to retain some moisture once it gets it? And if you even think about the dirt in, your, in one of your plots, you go out there a few days after a rain, grab some of the dirt in your hand, ball it up real tight, and open your hand. The dirt's going to do one of two things. It's going to fall apart into three or four big clumps, or it's going to fall apart into grades. If it falls apart into three or four good uh, big clumps, it's got some moisture still in it, so it's a good soil. If it falls apart into grain, it's a lighter soil. doesn't hold moisture as well. And then you look at the slope, uh, and, 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 and then you can pick something based on uh, that particular type drainage. And the neat thing is, is it would, uh, you know, no matter what your equipment capabilities are, uh, you know, or what your planting conditions are within, you know, most cases in the U.S., we got something that will do very well for you. And we make it very easy, at least with our products, this little computer program I wrote that they stuck on our website. And it's whitetailinstitute.com. <clears throat> and you go up to the header, and you'll see a link that says product selector. And you go through it once, uh, once, uh, one time for each plot, and it'll lead you to one or more forages that are, that are optimum for what you want that plot to do in the context of your overall system and what your capabilities are. Right. Um, if you have a large, uh, you know, a large enough piece of property, people will usually put, oh, I don't know, 60 to 70% in perennials and the rest in annuals. Some folks just hunt all annuals. I know some folks that do all perennials. Uh, but uh, like I said, that's sort of if you have a whole lot of land, but you just, you just, Try different things and, and see what works best for you and then tweak it. Right. The one thing that I saw, and I, I don't remember if it was just in a conversation you and I were having or if it was if I read it somewhere, um, as I'd mentioned earlier, we had used power plant in one of the plots. And, um, you know, right. I know that some, you know, one of the, I don't remember if it was when you and I were talking or if it was just some, somewhere that I read it, but they, regardless, the, the information basically was with power plant, one of the interesting or smart things might be to do, because that's more of a spring and summer type of, of mixture, is once you kind of get to the end of its life cycle, because it makes um, great bedding because of the height that it grows to, is to kind of mow that into strips and then plant side by side, you know, a, a different crop rotation that would be more fitting for um, you know, fall and, 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 and late season. Um, is that something yeah, that you would, a, you, you would recommend doing? I mean, cause it seems like a really good way to oh, kind yeah. of get best of both worlds. Right. And that's something I learned from a customer. He told me, I said, that's a great idea. I tried it. And I mean, it's just deadly. Uh, the power plant is our spring, summer annual. Uh, it, it's fantastic. It's the only spring specific spring, summer annual we sell. 
and it's it's that tell you how good it is. But it it can get about oh six feet tall, uh, and you want to put in uh, if you're in an area with normal deer density, you plant about the minimum size would be twenty five pounds in an acre. If you're in high deer density like we are here in central Alabama, you'd want to do an acre and a half and put in fifty pounds. So you're going to have a decent sized plot anyway, mm-hmm. and then you just wait and you come, wait till uh, a few weeks before your fall planting dates and. In most areas of the country, I guess every area, you're going to have a most commonly prevailing wind direction during uh, hunting season. Down here, it's usually out of the northwest. Mm-hmm. And so you go down to your uh, your uh, uh, downwind corner or edge, find a place for your stand, and then you mow some, some thin lanes going out through the power plant, radiating out like the spokes of a wheel so you can see down them. Uh, uh, from the stand. This is great for gun season. I'll tell you something else for archery later. Uh, but then you just uh, just mow some strips, let the clippings lie there a little bit, kind of dry out, and then just lightly uh, turn them into the soil and then plant an annual on top. It could be no plow, wintergreens, any of those, any of our annuals. And what happens is that power plant will start going down once you get frost coming in. And this will extend the life of the plot, you know, into the fall and winter. And during the interim time, right after you plant that fall annual, if you don't take out too much of the power plant, the deer will continue to bed in it, and they'll step in and out of those lanes, and you'll just all day long just wear them out. uh... For archery, there's only one one customer told me he did this, and I don't know if I can describe it, but uh, he had a pretty good-sized soybean field, and there was a little... I guess an isosceles triangle coming off one end of it, just a little point, and deer would go from, uh, you know, across across it. His stand was way out at the uh, the, at the far point, and he couldn't get a shot. So he planted the peninsula in a little diamond there in a, a triangle in a power plant, and then just gently walked through there and just just you know pushed him a little lane so that it would move deer around closer to his stand and of course they'll they're not scared they'll take the path of least resistance and he said it was like a parade they just walk right by so that worked real well for archery <laughs> nice yeah and i can definitely attest to the uh the bedding in the power plant i was uh you know blown away when after we had planted it and i took a little walk through because we had a camera near there and i didn't walk through it uh but there was a an edge that was kind of a, a little shorter that was was mowed for access because we have some farmers that use our our property so they had an access kind of lean back along the, the side of it and i just walked it the one day and once i got to the, the the back edge of that food plot man it was just a ridiculous amount of bedding in there it was just completely all smashed yeah. down with 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 the deer bed so um i was really excited to see that but so we kind of covered like the way that you could possibly get the best of both worlds out of one plot but you know if you if someone was starting a food plot and they were going to put one in and they only had one area available to put a food plot in what would be your suggested planning to get the the most out of it? Well, if they're starting out from ground zero, they don't know anything about it, and they're a little bit hesitant about about you know tilling the soil and doing all that. Just go with Imperial No Plow. I, I use as much of that as anything we've got. I know our outside ad guy does too. It's very simple, and the deer hammer it. It's just a, a it's a very very good product. Nice. So. When we're think when we're thinking of that, you know, what would be, I guess, the basic steps to get from, you know, no food plot to a food plot? If you could just kind of give us those, like, you sure. know, if, if you don't know anything else, these are the things you need to to do or to consider. Sure. Um, the the best way I can describe it is to look at it a little bit backwards. 
Mm-hmm. Let's say you're going to plan in the fall. You know, you you've chosen your product and you look on the bag of the website, it says, you know, these are the dates when you're going to plant. You decide you're going to plant uh, Labor Day or, or September 15th, say. That's when you're going to plant, all right? You start backing up and you get out of the cold part of winter and you look ahead to that date. And what you want to do in the meantime is get to the point that when you reach your planting date, your seed bed is what I call ready to plant, all right? That means soil pH is, is optimum, which is six and a half to seven and a half. Most people refer to that as neutral. You want as much uh, existing vegetation uh, removed from the site as possible, and you want it at proper smoothness and firmness for that planting. So you're ready to put the seed down. So you start, and a little while ago I mentioned choosing the forage first. That's the first thing you do. And then what you want to do in early spring is go out there and do your soil test. You want to do a laboratory soil test. It is the most important tool that you have to do two things, to make sure that your forage has everything it needs to flourish and that you don't waste one dime in in expenses buying lime and fertilizer that you really don't need because you shotgunned it by using one of those probe things or just default default recommendations. And what you do is, is you take your soil test, and there's a video on the website that explains how to do that, but... You check the block on the submission form. If, no matter what you're planning, you can write it in. Say you're establishing and then write in what it is. With our products, you just check the block establishing. If you're planting pure clover, check that block too. And what the lab is able to do then, uh, because different plants require different fertilizer uh, you know, mixes, uh, they don't all take the same thing. Um, they'll do a, a, a soil profile. They'll, it will look at the characteristics of your soil, and they can, with that information and the information about what you're going to plant, they can be extremely accurate in telling you exactly how much lime you need if you need it, and they can tell you exactly what blend of fertilizer and exactly how much to put on so you get everything they, uh, the plants need and you don't waste a dime. It's, and it's like 14 bucks. And in a lot of cases, most cases, I would say, you end up saving hundreds of dollars per acre, uh, you know, by doing it that way instead of just buying a bunch of lime fertilizer and throwing it out. It's the closest thing to printing your own money I've ever seen. <laughs> so, yeah, no, again, I like I said, you want to choose your forage first, then do your soil test. Now, once you do that soil test in the spring, you want to go ahead. The first thing you look at is soil pH. If it's below 6.5, there's going to be a lime recommendation. Get your lime, just use ag lime, put it out, and disc it or till it into the soil as soon as you can. Because uh, the way lime works is in particle-to-particle contact, meaning you've got to till the lime or disc the lime into the soil and mix it real well to have pH come up. Okay? Okay. Now, once you get to that point, you've just taken care of one of the factors of the ready-to-plant seed bed. You've taken care of your pH. Forget about it. Next thing, you want to get rid of the junk that's growing on the top. One thing you can do is just nothing else until you get to your planting days. Dr. Carol Johnson, who's our weed and herbicide scientist, uh, advocates, and he likes to ride on the, tra- ride on the tractor, uh, but if you really want to get the junk out, uh, everywhere in the U.S. you're going to have what's called uh, a weed bank, which is a layer of dormant weed and grass seeds in the soil, and some of them can stay there for like a generation. But after you work that lime in, go exactly two weeks later, disc it or till it again. Two weeks later, do it again. After you've done that two or three times, 
you're going to notice that the plot's not greening up with junk like it was. That means you brought a whole lot of that seed up and, uh, and let it germinate. And in, t- in two weeks, it will have committed, and then you till again and it kills it, and you're just washing all that, that, that junk out of there. Now, what I'll usually do is, whether or not I do that, we have so much junk in our soil down here. If it's a fallow site, then I'll come in, uh, you know, work the lineman in the spring, and I'll at the very least come back in a few weeks where I'm going to plant, till it again, let the junk come up, and spray it with a Roundup-type glyphosate herbicide and oil, and then not turn the soil again. And that kills off what's on the surface, and whatever I hadn't brought up in the way of seed, what's still down there is not going to bother me. So now you've taken care of that part. The final thing is you want it at proper smoothness and firmness for the size seeds you're planting. And because you just tilled it a few weeks earlier and smoothed it out, that's the thing. You do your last tillage, then smooth it out, let the junk come up and spray it. It'll be at optimum smoothness and your seed bed's ready to plant. Nice. Yeah, I mean, I can't... uh... I can't stress enough how important that, that you mentioned the, the, the soil testing is. And it, it, and it's really, really easy to do. You know, before we got into the, the food plotting, it was, uh, that was probably the part that I was a little, I guess, um, hesitant of just cause I didn't understand how to do it. I got on your site, read it. It's really, really easy. My brother-in-law actually went down to our farm, uh, together and made it kind of like a guy's weekend. And we just kind of walked around our fields and took our samples and, you know, mixed it all up and kind of made a guy's weekend out of it and did a little scouting at the same time. Um, and, uh, it, it definitely saved us a ton of money when it came to fertilizing and, and, and liming the field. So that's a hundred percent, uh, correct. You might be even be able to buy yourself a new piece of gear with the money you'll save. <laughs> that's absolutely right. And, and the, and the thing about it for me is, uh, you know, after having learned how, what an awesome tool it is, you know, I'd, I'd go have them done. I've had them done at ag universities and things. And, you know, of course they do a stellar job of it. Mm-hmm. But a lot of them service big farmers, and I, I'd look at those reports, and there'd be so many different numbers and percentages, and I, I had a hard time reading it. Ours, I like our soil test because it's absolutely a, a full soil testing laboratory test, qualified soil testing lab, but the report is so easy to read. It starts out with a bar graph. It tells you what your levels are of important nutrients and tells you what your soil pH is. Then it tells you how much lime to add. It tells you what fertilizer to add, and then on the back, it's got a. It'll have a bunch of different blocks that have different combinations of readily available bag fertilizer. So you can look around at your local store and say, "Well, they don't have that one. Well, just go to the next block and use the ones in that." And they tell you uh, in bag fertilizer. Uh, they tell they tell you if you want to mix it by by pound and all that. They've got that information too, but they also give you the information on on what bag fertilizer to use. Yeah, the tests really, I mean, the results really do make it uh, super simple. And, um, you know, you don't have to be a, a farmer or a herbologist or, or whatever the case might be right. um, to, to figure it out. That was one of the things that I found, you know, really comforting was when that test came in, I was a little apprehensive. I was like, am I even going to know how to read this thing? And it, it literally just told me I need this much lime per square or per square acre. I need this much fertilizer yeah. per square acre, um, yeah. which made it really, really simple and takes a lot of the... Uh, um, a lot yeah. of, it takes all the guesswork out of it to be quite honest, but you know, yeah. when we're, when we're talking about, you know, I'd mentioned, you know, I'm not a farmer and, and so forth, even though we, we have a, have a family farm. So I think one of the questions that always comes up, cause a lot of folks who have, you know, the acreage maybe that are going to go maybe with some bigger plots and so forth, they're probably folks who, you know, have farms or live close to farms. Right. Um, you know, sure. unless you're in like an urban hunting kind of, kind of scenario, 
So I think the question comes up a lot, is, and it's, you know, are food pots, plots helpful for properties that are in heavy agricultural land, or are they not as valuable in, in those cases? No, yes, they are. Well, I don't know if they're as valuable or, or not, but yes, they are They are valuable, uh, very much so. Now, you know, there's no doubt that deer are going to utilize and benefit from farm crops. Anybody that says otherwise is is is, is an idiot right <laughs> <laughs> you know they're they're going to eat farm crops it's it's silly to think they don't right but yeah. there are other things to think about uh one thing that uh, i don't know whether you'd say it's major or minor i think it's i think it's major but uh, the, all the seeds you see out there that are planted for for this sort of thing most of them uh the farm crops are, were designed for one of two things to produce something for harvest or to be grazed by cattle and I won't go into all the differences, but you know the deer have a they're small ruminant animals. They need a, a lot more tender forages. Uh, so ours we ours are actually designed for deer. Right. Uh, but in the bigger sense, you know, you have to look at what the farmers go with. Uh, his he's trying to max maximize his return. Just just uh, you know, he gets the type of crop, the variety he uses, what he harvests it. And uh, he probably gives little thought of, of how deer are going to benefit. He probably re- rather they don't benefit it at all because right. you know it's predation. Um, but you have to consider too the timing of harvest. Let's say you've got all sorts of uh, crops planted plant around you. Well, at least down here, long about the time hunt season comes around comes along, it's harvested out of there. So you know the food plots give you the option to. Uh, be the only game in town after that happens. Uh, you know, you look, take corn as an example. You know, they uh, deer need really high levels of protein and other nutrients during the spring and summer when the bucks are growing their antlers and does are lactating. And uh, corn, the plants are you know deer nip them off sometimes when it's young, but for the most part, they just pretty much eat the eat the ear that's produced by the plant, not the plant itself. Uh, and when you consider corn's pretty low in protein, it's high in carbs, but very low in protein comparatively. And the ear's not formed until late summer. A cornfield will not really supply them a whole lot of nutrition during the time, uh, the spring and the summer, when their uh, does are lactating and the, the, the bucks are growing their antlers. Um, and then you look around till till uh, fall, you know. Uh, everybody talks about protein, and it's proteins a, is, is is the king, the king of kings when it comes to nutrients during the uh, the spring and summer. But in fall, uh, it's carbohydrates are really, I guess, energy. Energy is not a nutrient; it's a product of other nutrients. But it's from uh, lipids and, and uh, carbohydrates all go to produce that energy. That's when that's so important. And corn provides a bunch of it. But then. If the corn is harvested in the fall, you know it doesn't leave much much there for the nutritionally stressful uh, winter months, especially. Uh, I already mentioned that the uh, the varieties used can can make a difference. The soybean we use is not an ag bean. Uh, the ag beans, you know, if you've ever seen an agricultural soybean field, you know the deer just hammer it. They love it. Right. Uh, it can, you know, when they bite those plants off, it can it can stun them. Uh, they tend to get sort of stemmy as they go along. We use a uh, a a real forage soybean that grows in a vine, and it stays it stays up supple. And uh, once the deer start uh, utilizing it, it, it even regenerates and keeps going once it is, uh, it establishes. Right. And you think like uh, you know, you got clover, alfalfa. Uh, you know, like I said, most of those were developed for grazing by cattle. And they they get you know, uh, they can get a little stemmier uh, than deer can really utilize. If you have ever seen al- an alfalfa field, you know mature alfalfa uh, 
the deer will use it a little bit, and then the farmer will come in there and mow it. And right after the deer, that, the deer just hammer it on that new growth. And then as it starts to regrow more of the stem, they start backing off. They're not using it as heavily. Uh, so that's, that's, that's another uh, place that the farm crops are not quite as good as what we consider true forage varieties. Uh, so there are a lot of differences, but yes, if you're in an agricultural area, yeah, food plots can make a big, big difference. Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, I, I definitely, we've noticed that on, on our, our farm. You know, like I would mentioned earlier, there's, you know, a lot of corn planted in some of the fields that the farmer's leasing out from us. And, and when they pull that stuff off, it's you know, like, like you mentioned, we're really the only game in town um, as far as yeah. a, a food source is concerned with the clover field. And that's kind of why we, you know, used uh, that, that secondary plot that we have that we're going to start using it as more of a fall and, and winter uh, food source just because there's all the farmers around us are doing corn for the most part and so everyone pulls that you know off all the all the uh of the vittles so to speak uh around the same time which usually for, you sure. know, for this area of pennsylvania it's usually right the first weekend of uh of archery season for us it's usually all the corn comes off which really kind of leaves right. with not much for the for the hunting season you know so um you know we've definitely found value in the in, in having the food plots during that time of the year uh, just for that specific reason um and now we're trying to right. sweeten the sweeten the pot a little bit so to speak to to kind of i guess play more long term through the season than the early early portion of the season but you sure. know when we're talking about the, the the food plots and so forth you know should food plots and crops be be rotated in general i know as farmers you know right now the farmer that we lease our some of our fields out to he's changing from corn and turning those corn fields into alfalfa just for from a crop rotation standpoint so is it still right. is, is that still important when it comes to food plots and, and rotating your crops and what's the benefit of that uh yes it is it's crop rotation is usually not as big a deal to food food plotters as to like big commercial farmers who plant the same crop year after year in the same ground um but you know any soil that's asked to grow the same crop year after year whether the whatever the crop is eventually it's probably going to require a break just to let the soil clean out mm-hmm. uh some forages we plant for deer like brassicas alfalfas they need to be given special consideration uh you don't want to plant straight alfalfa right on right into a uh, an existing mature alfalfa field uh, brassicas, we say generally you don't want to run it more than two years without having a break. Mm-hmm. Um, aside from those, if you're wondering when you might need one, the easiest thing is just to eyeball it. If you're doing, let's say you've got an imperial clover field, it's been there for, I don't know, five, eight years or whatever. At some point, you're going to be doing everything you're supposed to. Soil pH is right, you're fertilizing it, you're keeping the grass out, and it's just not, not looking as good as it was. That that's an indicator, and you can you can kind of you can tell uh, there are tests you can do. You can go out and pull up some of the roots if they're not fleshy and firm, if they're spindly, or if you dig around, you find evidence of grubs and other insects. That's that's what the scientists would call evidence of disease. It's not like a virus or something, but it's it, it's something that makes the plant sick, and you need to need to uh, clean out. Uh, generally, do just the general appearance of the crop if you're doing everything right. Uh, is 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 the indicator on that, and if and when you're ready to uh, to do a rotation, just pick something to plant for a season that's totally different. Uh, if you're doing say imperial clover or another legume, you've had that in the plot for a long time, take it out, and then next fall and winter run pure attraction, which is oats and brassica or our oats or something like that in there, and then by the next spring you'll be ready to work it up again and go back with your perennial. 
Nice. So it's, you know, so we're following the, you know, similar, similar suit for just agriculture in, in general. We don't want to deplete that soil of those specific nutrients, um, but just kind of keep a, keep an eyeball on it is what we're kind of, kind of looking at. If it looks like it's struggling, it might be time to switch it up. Um, right. Is, and here's nothing. Here's the seed. All this stuff, this is where you start. Once you get these basics down, you go, oh, that's an idea. And you start thinking all this stuff. And this just occurs to me. Let's say you've got a pretty good sized plot, like an you know, acre or something like that, even a half acre. Uh, you know, you can plant a perennial on one side and annual on the other side. And then in a few years, if you want to rotate, just swap where they are, that kind of thing. Right. Yeah. You just, uh, you actually read my mind because we're uh, we've had our our clover plot in for a couple of years, and we're coming up on that. Uh, yeah, probably in the next two years, probably where we probably need to consider giving it a giving it a rest or doing some type of rotation. Um, and then sure. with all the 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 food that's moving around on our farm with the farmer and and so forth, we're kind of you know considering doing exactly what you're kind of talking about. Is we're going to kind of do it half and half, um, and probably even yeah. do do strips that way. You know, as the deer's crossing the 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 field in any given direction they're going to cross over every type of forage they can need during any part of the season. So that way they don't get used to it being just a spring and summer or just a fall and winter. I'm really trying to make it work for us as, as hard as it possibly can. So that's a, uh, you definitely read my mind there. Cause I think that's on the, uh, that's probably our next big move for the, uh, for the food plot. And I'm looking forward to it. Cause as you mentioned at the top, it's uh it's fun. I like to get my hands in the dirt a little bit and feel like I'm stewarding the ground a little bit. So it's always a good time. But sure, and you know, you're talking about fun. I, this is why I'm thinking about it. For forget, uh, you know, it's it's for it's fun and educational. Is when when you plant your food plots, put an exclusion cage out there. It's just a wire basket that you stake down where deer can't eat what's in there. And then you can uh, that's the that's what we do to see how heavily deer are grazing a plot because a lot of stuff grows back so quickly you don't really notice it. But if you can see that you know it, it's a visual gauge literally you can see how hard the deer are grazing the plot. And the other neat thing is if you put them side by side, uh, you know to give you an idea of of, of if, if deer are hitting one forage more than another uh, at what times of the year, and it's just good information and it's just something else fun to mentally mess with when you're sitting out there so right yeah i mean but if you do that i will tell you this make darn sure you put flagging tape on top of that cage because if you don't you will walk or back over it trust me on that <laughs> nice yeah mentioning uh, you know kind of speaking of fun like one of the things i like about working the food plots is i usually involve involve my daughter and this is just important for me from like a I guess a, a land stewardship and, and conservation perspective is it's important sure. for me to get her out there doing that at a young age to uh, understand you, that yeah that this Kudos. yeah the the land is a is a resource to us it's not you know we own it only for a short period of time but it's really our responsibility yep. to manage it take care of it to uh, make sure that there's wild things on there for for a long time so for me food plotting sure. is just another tool for me to kind of you know in right. my parenting bag of tricks if you will. Um, yeah, good. Yeah. So, so one of the things I think, you know, when people are talking about food pots, as I mentioned at the, at the top, I think people consider it to be much more challenging or harder or, or more daunting of a task than it really is. So what are some of the biggest misconceptions people have about food plots when they're considering? Putting well, the first, in? the first, what you mentioned, the, the biggest one is that it's daunting or difficult. It's like anything else you look at that is a process that you haven't done before. Uh, it, it just, it, it it can seem overwhelming when you step back and look at it until you sit down and think, well, wait a minute, what's involved with this? And when you just get a few steps down like that, you have a skeleton to hang that framework on, and you, you just go, wait a minute, this is easy. But that's the biggest 
misconceptions, it's hard. It's not hard. If it was hard, I wouldn't be doing it, I guarantee you. <laughs> right. uh, it's not hard, and that's no matter what your equipment and time limitations are. You, you can do it and do it easily and have fun doing it. Uh, you know, another misconception is one you talked about, that, uh, that uh, uh, planting only farm crops as food plots as, as forages or, you know, is the way to go, and in some cases it may be uh, for some people. Uh, but it's, uh, you know, deer will heavily use them, uh, and there's no reason not to use some, especially on larger properties. But the fact is, if you're going to attract deer and do it as heavily as possible, you need to think about this. You need to plant something that's going to outdraw, I guess that's a good word, outdraw deer, draw deer better than your neighbor. Right. And if your neighbor's planting farm crops, you can take it up to a higher level by planting forages that are specifically designed for deer and to be planted in food plots for deer. Uh, if you're going to push them up the genetic ladders farther, most people, you know, everybody wants to attract deer. The other one is to make them bigger and better. If you're going to do both of those things, the very best you can do, then, then uh, forages specifically designed for deer will do it. Yeah, it, you know, it's the... Uh one of the things, and you mentioned Neil earlier, one of the big takeaways I had from him whenever I was uh, at one of his seminars was, you know, he was talking about, you know, deer versus, or deer in New York or Pennsylvania, for example, versus Iowa or somewhere in the Midwest where they're typically known to have, have bigger deer. He was like, when you look at him, he's like, they're typically the, the same deer. They did some studies of taking deer from one area of the country to another to see, and then track them to see if they if if there was any large changes um and basically what he came what it came down to was is he was like it's food and nutrients he's like you know the midwest grows great food and there's more food per square mile you just got to push the food to them um and so you know that's kind of the point that you're kind of getting at here it's all about the the nutrition level and it's specifically for deer um and if you're if you're putting stuff in that is there going to be available to them year round when farmers pull their crops right because they're not interested in feeding deer necessarily it's making sure that they have deer in the the nutritional leg up so to speak you know no matter what time of the year it is um so I think that's, that's true but keep in mind also the other the other big thing about that is safety you want them to feel safe on your property and feel safe using those food plots especially during daylight hours right so you know now that we kind of understand what some of the misconceptions are you know what do you think the biggest mistakes people make when they're planning food plots are and i guess some of the watch outs uh would be trying to put the wrong forages in for the condition of the site uh, planting at the wrong time outside the planting dates. We have planting dates for each of our products on the bags on the website. Uh, and uh, then also planting in a seed bed that isn't ready to plant, like I said. And of, of, of the factors going into that, soil pH. Soil pH is the most important thing you can control to ensure food plot success, period. It's the most important thing. Nice. Uh, so, you know, as far as choosing the right forage, you know, just once you decide what you're going to plant, you can do that with our stuff on the product selector, like I said, on our on our website. Uh, you know, it'll help you do that. Then just do your soil test, lime and fertilizers required, and just follow the planting instructions. And as far as the planting instructions go, this is something else to think about. Look at it from our standpoint, and I, of course, don't know what other companies that sell food plot stuff do, but I would imagine they're in the, they're the same as we are in this, is the last thing we want somebody to do is pick up a, a bag of our uh, food plot seed, flip it over on the back, and see so many instructions down there that the customer's going to go, I ain't doing all of this, and right. go buy a bag of ryegrass, okay? So what we do is we took very great pains. I just rewrote them for the web to try to simplify them again. 
we keep them as short and sweet as we possibly can. And all you have to do is follow those steps in order and you're in good shape. But because we keep it so short and sweet, that also means that what's in there and the order you have them is very important. And if you cut corners, you're going to probably shoot yourself in the foot in some way. So it's real simple for you. Pick the pick the right forage, use the lab soil test, do what it says, and just follow the planting directions, and you'll be rocking and rolling. Nice. Very simple. Yeah, I think one of the things that you mentioned there was interesting was, is following the planting dates. And one thing that I learned um, – you know, there's because sometimes you know life gets in the way, and maybe you don't get get to where you need to be in terms of your planning schedule and stuff like that in in a, in a timely way. You know, there's it's not that you don't have any options. You have some you have some you know um, seed that doesn't take you know a seed bed prep and and stuff like that to where if you do miss an early planting date, there's always an option for you to kind of get something in 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 for fall. You know, so just because that's you right. miss your early planting date doesn't mean you don't have an opportunity for a, for a good food plot that's going to work yep. for you. Um, so I think just you know for folks to kind of remember that that there's options all all along the way, um, and you guys do sure, a good job. Sure, that's a of, very very good point because it's like think about taking a trip. If you've got to drive across the country, you're not going to run out and get in the car and start driving. You're going to get the car checked. You're going to make sure the oil's changed. Make sure you have enough gas. Make sure you got your munchies. Make sure you got your roadmap. And so, if you find a new spot, say just before fall, and you don't have time to work it up and 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 you know get it like it's supposed to be for a perennial or something like that, then. Don't stick it in there anyway. Just run no plow. Run no plow or secret spot or bow stand or one of those because it takes very little prep. And then start back over in the spring and get ready to put whatever. If You, you may want to stick with those because they work so well. If you want something else, that gives you time to do it. But what I'm saying is don't don't plant without your seed bed being ready to plant, whatever that means for that particular product. Right. So I, I've kept you here about an hour. I want to be sensitive to your uh, to your time. I appreciate you spending some time to hop on with us here. But I have one last. Well, I appreciate it because I'm still eyeballing that coffee pot, man. It's, <laughs> it's, all, it's just it's just I can't quite reach it. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I feel bad because I just finished mine. I was thinking I might need a little bit more, and here you are. You haven't had any yet, so, so yeah, you're I'll, a cruel man. <laughs> so I'll ask you one last question. All the folks we have on, sure. I always like to kind of end it with a uh, with a hunting story. So if you wouldn't mind, just give us a little, take us on a hunt with John. Um, let us know of a memorable hunt you had. It doesn't have to be one that there was a harvest, just one that really kind of sticks in your mind. And take us from the tailgate of the truck back to the uh, back to the cabin for the uh, full story. And let me know what. Well, boy, you sort had. of you sort of caught me off guard on that one. I uh, I guess my most memorable was I used to shoot a three hundred Weatherby a friend of mine built, and it was a. Uh, I mean, it's it's one of those rifles we've all had. Uh, one or two of these, maybe during a life, where you just throw it up, it hits, and the deer's down. It's just every time, it's just regulars clockwork. And I remember going, I was, uh, I huffed it out to my stand. I got there, I realized I didn't have something. I'm like, crap. So I get back down, and it's probably, I don't know, third of a mile. I go humping back to the truck and looking there, and then I realized I had, what I had left was actually my pack. So I'm like, Crap. So I put my pack back on. I grab my rifle and start humping back to the stand. And I get to this one field right in the middle of the property. It's maybe 100 acres. And it had had beans and it was flat now. And it was just getting to the point where light is coming up enough where you can just make out the detail between the black trees and the lighter soil. It was a sandier soil, lighter soil. Just barely see that contrast. I'm looking looking through my scope, and I'm kind of like, huh. And I look through it again. I just stopped to look. And I could see some stuff sticking down in the uh, in the dirt, 
below the black line of the trees, if that makes sense. So I sort of like rub my eyes, and it's that point when it's just changing so fast. I look through it again. I can see two deer walking along, kind of quartering away from me, pretty good ways away. And uh, I can see one of them had stuff on his head. You know what I mean? It's just like this kind of thing that's moving. And it, it wasn't a massive deer by most people's standards. He was a big one for me. He was like 130, 135 or 6, I guess, which for me is a big deer. Hey, I'm not, uh, I'm not, I'm not shying away from him. <laughs> yeah, but uh, you know, but I'm, I'm sitting there, so I so I take my pack off and I'm right by this little uh, the corner of the field where the pine trees are, and I put my pack down, and I drop down on the ground, and I look, you know, put the rifle up, and look through it. I didn't realize later until later that I had dropped down in about three inches of water and mud. I was just soaked; I didn't even know it. And so I get on the scope and I looked up, and it was the and I could see his rack. And I said, "Okay, I'm not looking at it again," and I uh, pulled the trigger and got back on the scope, but he was down on his chest sort of muzzling along and uh that not a, a lot of folks back then did use 300 magnums but uh certainly not 300 weatherby but i just liked it and uh so i had one built in that but when i shot and i ran over and saw deer i went woo like that but a buddy of mine that was hunting on the other side of the property looks at one of my other friends he was hunting with he said he looked at him he goes oh man cooner's done kill bullwinkle <laughs> nice that's awesome the uh yeah, yeah my dad has a 300 weatherby i never i never got one he he but he passed down his 270 to me and that's when he got his three yeah. 300 so maybe uh maybe someday it'll uh it'll be mine but john i, I want to thank you for coming on all, all the folks out there are listening if you're considering putting food plots in you know the guys at whitetail institute of north america are, are top notch not only do they know what they're talking about when it comes to food plot and, and seed selection and anything that has to do with putting food plots in but you won't meet a nicer group of guys so do yourself a favor and head over to whitetail institute uh's website and uh, check out all their offerings and uh, i'll of course put all the information in the uh, blog post show notes but john thanks for ho- uh, getting on early in the morning and uh, i'll let you go grab your coffee now Always a pleasure, man. I appreciate it. All right. That is a wrap for today's show, folks. We'd just like to thank John for coming on and joining us. And, of course, thank all of you for spending an hour of your day with us listening to us talk about deer hunting. If you're liking the podcast, uh, please feel free to subscribe to the podcast via iTunes, Stitcher. And you can, of course, listen to us on Google Play. Uh, Also, please feel free to leave us a five-star iTunes rating. We'd be very much appreciative of that. We also need to make sure to thank our partners in Exodus Outdoor Gear, Whitetail Institute of North America, and Lone Wolf Portable Tree Stands for helping us make this podcast happen. And until next time, we'll see y'all. game in wild places tune in to hunt stand presents saturdays at 8 30 p.m eastern waypoint tv the destination for outdoor entertainment you want to succeed you want to fish you want to be one of the greatest tune in to west marines life on the water presented by costa custom boats every saturday night from 7 to 9 p.m eastern on waypoint tv